0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to Key Change, a COC podcast, where we explore everything about opera from a fresh perspective.
1: We're your hosts, Robin Grant Moran and Julie McIsaac. And welcome to Episode 12 of Key Change, our first podcast of the spring. Today we're looking at opera and contemporary art, and some of the projects where the two collide and intersect.
0: Toronto as a city is a phenomenal cultural hub. It's home to so many creators and artistic organizations, and something that's been so great to see, especially during the pandemic, has been the shared sense of solidarity and partnership as all of us in the arts and culture sector work to stay connected to our art forms and to our shared communities. And by collaborating with one another, I think we're all learning that we're more alike than we are different.
1: This episode is kind of a perfect example of that. When we were thinking about the idea of opera and contemporary art, the Icelandic artist Ragnar Kjartnsson immediately came to mind. Someone had mentioned this wild-sounding installation that he'd done called Bliss. It's basically a two-minute excerpt from the finale of Mozart's The Marriage of Figaro,
0: looped over and over for 12 hours straight. So for anyone who thinks that operas are long, uh, leading to a potentially very frustrating or potentially exquisite transformative experience, depending on your perspective, Ragnar's work takes things to a whole new level.
1: In doing our research, we realized that Ragnar actually has one of his works currently on display at the Art Gallery of Ontario. And this got us thinking, here's a chance for us to learn more about the world of contemporary art but also for art gallery fans to learn more about opera. So in addition to speaking with Ragnar, we also connected
0: with Adelina Vlas, Associate Curator of Contemporary Art. We'll hear from Ragnar later in this episode and you definitely don't want to miss it. It's so fun and fascinating. But first up, Adelina is Associate Curator of Contemporary Art at the Art Gallery of Ontario. Before that, she held curatorial positions at the Philadelphia Museum of Art and the National Gallery of Canada, She was involved in bringing the massively popular Infinity Mirrors by Yayoi Kusama to Toronto in 2018, and her area of specialty is post-war contemporary art with a focus on conceptual and time-based media practices. Adelina, we're thrilled to have you here with us today, and we're really excited to talk to you about your curatorial work, but just before we jump into that we'd love to know how has opera been present or how did it
2: first come into your life? Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be uh, talking to you today and um, opera is something that's been in my life um, from a very young age. I uh, grew up in uh, communist Romania in the 80s, which was one of the harshest decades under that uh, particular regime. And um Somehow the uh, the censorship bureau thought that opera was not subversive, so we were allowed to experience it. Uh, so it was one of the forms of music that I listened to growing up and learned in school about. So... Uh, Uh, someone like Giuseppe Verdi was a, you know, um, household name in Romania. And we would talk about um, uh, his operas as if they were, you know, um, our own cultural (laughs) background. So um, it's, yeah, it's something I grew up with and I've experienced um, uh, almost my entire life. And just, I'm very curious, with Verdi, was there anything in particular that stood out to you? Well, the the large kind of um, ensemble, you know, choir pieces were the most dramatic ones. And I think that, um, of course, if you think historically at the time when he was um, uh, composing that music and uh, the the political message right <laughs> of course opera was nothing but <laughs> the verse, right so in a way I like to think about it as cheating the system a little bit right because uh, art always has a message and uh, the message might be uh, perceived differently in time but um, yeah it's always there
1: Catalina, can you tell us more about the role of a curator? What does an average day look like for you?
2: So, I am a curator of contemporary art, and um, I want to make that distinction because uh, contemporary art means uh, dealing with living artists or working with living artists, and. um, Um, It's very different than um, working with uh, the ones we've passed on. Uh, And it's something that attracted me to this particular um, area of of work is because I love working with uh, living art, is being part of of the uh, moment I live in and being part of the conversations around how the work is made, how the work is displayed. So a typical day in a large museum like the Art Gallery of Ontario might involve a number of things. Um, Communications with artists is one of them. Um, on any given day, I might be talking with an artist in Montreal or Vancouver or Paris or, you know, Buenos Aires, depending on uh, what our projects are. And uh, communications with uh, colleagues and galleries and um, uh, constant exchange. It's uh, it's a really active field. And internally, we need to to discuss how we realize our projects, how we make acquisitions, how we remain relevant to current conversations and to our community. So I might be doing you know visits to galleries when that's allowed. I might be on the phone. I might be in a meeting. I might be in a gallery. I might be having coffee with a, a supporter. It's, uh, it's all happening.
1: I'm wondering, with COVID, has that changed what a day in curation looks like?
2: It has. And um, I'll, I'll use the example of um, an exhibition that uh, uh, is currently installed in the galleries. It opened in uh, October. It was originally scheduled for April of 2020. So when we went in the first lockdown, crates were arriving to with works from all over the world. The artist is Hegyu Yang. The exhibition is called Emergence. She's uh, Korean, but based in Berlin and Seoul. The exhibition, first of all, the works had to stay in crates for months until we were allowed to get back in the building and open them and install the exhibition at a slower pace, accounting for um, the new protocols, health, uh, health protocols. And the artist was never able to come or any of her assistants, and that's highly unusual in contemporary art. I was really
0: drawn to what you were saying, Adelina, about how you work with living artists and how that's an important distinction, where some of your colleagues might be working with artworks that have been created by people who've come before us and people who've passed and what the corollaries are in opera practice, because a lot of our grand works are created by composers who are no longer with us, but we have contemporary creation happening as well. And Now, your specialty at the AGO, as we understand it, is post-war contemporary art, especially conceptual and time-based media practices. Now, the idea of a piece being time-locked certainly sets it apart from a lot of other working galleries. And what do you think that dimension adds for the viewer?
2: Duration is part of any artistic experience. You can take a second, two seconds, a minute to look at a painting, or you can take an hour to look at a painting. So you define how long you want to spend with a work of art. I think performative arts, uh, like opera, have a different kind of temporality and duration and require a different kind of... um, time investment but uh, as it applies to contemporary art we define time-based media by the medium itself so if it's a file that's on a carrier it needs a um, a playback device and it needs a display device right so it like it's uh it could be a usb you need to plug it into a um, computer into a drive and then you need a projector so those are the technical terms that define time-based media it's really interesting because um, when artists turned to technology, uh, it happened in the 60s, right, when technology became uh, more easily available and uh, portable and easy to use. Um, and since um, artists have struggled themselves with how much can they ask of the viewer, especially in the museum context, right? And we're very much aware of that demand on the viewer to to spend time with the work that it's At predetermined time, right? We usually put on our labels the duration so visitors know like, okay, this, if you want to experience it from the beginning to the end, it's 30 minutes or it's 15 minutes. And I think that artists at some point figure out that the ideal uh, length is like eight to 10 minutes. (laughs) So we started seeing a lot of uh, work under 10 minutes. It's dependent on the content too, Right. Uh, and I think with uh, we'll be talking about Ragnar, and in his case, uh, he's someone who has been interested in duration in a very particular way, right? Um, and I think that what he's built into his work from the beginning is this repetition. So repetition is already part of the structure he's working with. So he repeats usually a, a one, two, three-minute musical Segment again and again and again and sometimes for as long as an hour or more. Uh, But the idea is that you can walk in, you can be there for a few minutes and you kind of understand. And if you really get pulled into the work, you can spend as long as you want. But that repetition is almost like the looping device uh, that connects to the medium itself. When we project something, it's always looping
1: how does the role of narrative change between a more traditional piece of art or even opera and some of the conceptual or time-based works that you specialize in?
2: Of Someone like Michael Snow, right? Um, who is, you know, the subject of his films and uh, is film, film itself. And um, it's extremely conceptual and there is no narrative, right? It's completely broken down and um, uh, taken away from the medium. So yeah, it has to be in the context of each individual practice. But narrative, um, again, it's, um, if you think of a historic painting, and um, I'm, or, you know, large scale painting usually involves some kind of narrative. And there are it's, it's static, right? You, you have to use your imagination to activate that that image and that scene and create the narrative or think of the narrative that it belongs to. And I think that uh, time-based media or artists who work with film and video um, use, of course, the temporality as a way of telling a story, and there are artists who work in more of a documentary style. Uh, but others still chose to just play with the, with the conventions of the medium and temporality being one of them, to create a different sense of narrative or a different sense of experience altogether.
0: Are there particular movements or trends in terms of narrative or
2: doing away with narrative that you're particularly drawn to? Uh, someone like Hito Tyro uh, who's a German artist uh, who actually had an exhibition at the AGO in 2019 called This is the Future, is someone who's... Um, trained as a filmmaker and uh, he's she's a writer and she's thinking about the medium but she's also very much interested on how um, we as subjects of 21st century are, bombarded with information, with imagery, with um, all kinds of um, um, visuals that uh, we're not even able to uh, tell what's real, what's not real, and what is being done to us when that uh, information is presented to us. So her work is very much about creating almost documentary style uh, videos, but they incorporate elements of almost like surrealism and uh, uh, performances and music and humor. and uh, But they, they all tie together in a very interesting way. And you're left questioning your own agency in the world and uh, your own um, perception of reality. So I, I find the practice like that extremely interesting.
0: Knowing that Ragnar currently has an exhibit on display at the AGO called Death is Elsewhere. What do you find most striking about Ragnar's work?
2: I've known Ragnar's work for almost 15 years. We're the same generation. So um, as I was becoming a curator, he was becoming an artist. And um, I kept running into his work in different places around the world. And um, so I've seen it develop and um, get to the point where he's at now. And Death is Elsewhere was made in 2019. It was such a strong experience that it made me think that we should buy it for the AGO, and it's now in our collection. Um, and one of the elements that's very fascinating is how he created an all-surrounding environment. It's a panoramic. You're surrounded by this landscape. It makes you think of, of of painting. It makes you think of sculpture. It makes you think of very traditional forms of art, but they are... Um, expressed in this very contemporary format of moving image.
0: And what do you find particularly
2: impactful
0: about the way that he plays and incorporates music?
2: He knows how to select exactly the the, the type of music or the style of music that has the maximum impact. Uh, for what he is trying to say and I like to call that kind of the emotional temperature of the style right so he might use opera in one instance or he might use you know um, a very mournful song in another or a love ballad like he's using in death is elsewhere Um, and he his relationship with music extends also to his collaborations with his uh, musician friends. And um, Death is Elsewhere also has that uh, aspect very present as um, we have those two sets of musician twins uh, paired together and uh, they compose a song together with Ragnar. So music is at the core of um, how he develops a project or a work of art.
1: I'd like to just connect your work to to opera for a moment and um both the ago and the coc share roots in a predominantly european classical and romantic art form with ties to particular socioeconomic classes but we're seeing both companies working to make sure they do better to represent toronto and make space welcoming for as many people as possible so how do you think that we can strive to do better
2: this is a it's a very good question, and I agree with you that um, our institutions are very much rooted in a Eurocentric uh, or neurocentric traditions. Um, at the AGo, I think we're um, we're working on multiple fronts to um, uh, to address this question, and uh, one of the initiatives that um, uh, came out in two thousand and nineteen was. Um, a major access initiative introducing uh, a low-cost membership of $35 a year. It's called an annual pass. And also allowing people under the age of 25 to come and access the museum for free. And what this um, uh, program has allowed us to learn about our audiences is really amazing because we learned that... uh, People between eighteen and twenty-five really took advantage of this offer and came in to experience what the AGO had to offer, and we also learned that they were much more diverse than our traditional audiences. And uh, it got us thinking that um, you know we we need to do better to reflect that, and we need to uh, change the way we program, the way we collect, and the way we represent the communities we're serving.
1: I'm thinking back to the Kusama exhibition that. The only thing that was really restrictive about it was actually getting a ticket because there was so much interest. Like it was an incredibly diverse group of people there and like nothing like I've ever seen at the AGO. I'm wondering if, if that was expected.
2: Oh, yes and no. Um I worked on that exhibition. I was the in-house curator for the Ayoi Kusama Infinity Mirrors. So I'm very close to how we uh, thought about it in advance and really what the reality taught us. And um, we knew from the venues who organized the show and who displayed it before it got to Toronto that... Um, we, we didn't have to worry about an audience that people will come that, um, already Kusama had such a reputation. And, um, it's interesting how her way of uh, creating those reflective environments in a way, um, predating social media, but very much, you know, <laughs> uh, talking about this narcissistic I- I- instinct that has been exacerbated by social media, you know, this kind of constant, infinite reflection of ourselves. So it wasn't, we weren't surprised. We knew that uh, it will have a large audience appeal and that, yeah, our problem would be how to, how to get more people than we could physically accommodate to see it. And that was the challenge. And if I may add something that I think ties us back to to Ragnar in a way it's um I always thought about those infinity mirrors I mean they they are so, you know, uh, photogenic, if I may call them that, and so uh, social media friendly, and everyone wanted their picture and that reflection. But um, when I was giving tours and when I was talking about those rooms, um, particularly the dark ones, the ones that um, were dark with the light reflections, they're all very much about um, kind of death and um energy you know the kind of the how she thinks about us being just dots of energy and the dots that's why it's such an important motif for her so to think about that in in connection with Ragnar's piece that clearly states in its title uh, death and brings that up to our minds I, I find that kind of an interesting um, uh, contrast yeah
0: What I find myself thinking about is opera as a reflective surface, in the sense that we have these works that have been with us for centuries, and every time we mount them or explore them anew, it's a surface on which we can see ourselves reflected, or it tells us something about our contemporary experience. In terms of that lived experience that we're going through right now, we know that our city is still in this on-again, off-again state of lockdown. So we thought we'd
2: ask, what and where is your favorite piece of public art in Toronto right now? Well, Toronto is so rich with public art. I, I think we're really lucky and, um, you know, it's one of the options we have to still encounter art and interact with art. And um, there are a few works of art that come to mind and mostly because they are part of my everyday or at least they were when I was commuting and I was out in the world, but they still are because they're in, in my neighborhood or at least close to where I live. And um, one of them is um, called Three Points, where two lines meet. And um, it's uh, this kind of um, uh, playful, colorful metal structure built by two artists that work as a collective and um, uh, Daniel Yang and Christian Giroux. And it's at the intersection of Bathurst and um, Vaughan Road, just south of St. Clair West. And... uh, the reason why I love it so much is because I most of the time I pass it either on my bike or in a car or on a bus. And um, when I'm with my son who's five years old, uh, I look at how it activates his imagination and we can talk uh, for like a long time about what he sees in it, what he thinks it's about. And I think that that's the sign of a successful uh, public art project is when it gets your imagination um, Going And you can think of what you see in it versus when, what, what the artist intended or, uh, so I like those open-ended projects. And another project like this that I, I love, and it's, um, it used to be close to where I lived before in Parkdale. Uh, it's a work by Louis Jacob and it's called Spirits of the Grotto. And it's in the Dufferin Railway underpass at Queen and Dufferin. And there are those sets of faces and eyes that are kind of um, uh, presented on both sides of the underpass as you go under. And they kind of follow you and move with you. And uh, it's, it's, again, like artists finding ways to respond to a site so successfully. Um, it's already, it's a gift to the city, right? Because they, they become uh, landmarks and they are there as part of your everyday.
1: I was really happy that Adelina talked about the art at the Dufferin underpass, because geography and and environment is so important. I love the idea of her son, like we all, I I know I stop and every time I see it, I've never gotten bored of it. Mm -hmm. Um, I always stop and think about it. And I love the idea of her son reflecting on what it means to
0: well, I'm so grateful that you asked her the question about what makes successful public art. So to to ruminate on that for a little bit, because I think it's um, art is subjective, but for us to give some energy to what is it that is successful? What is it that um, makes it a meaningful contribution to the landscape of the city? And like you said, does it make people stop and like ignite their imaginations and their interpretations of it? Or does it open up new ways of seeing or for them to connect with their reality? also really intrigued when Adelina shared with us that growing up in communist Romania, opera was allowed because it wasn't seen as something that was subversive. It was very safe. Or- right? Isn't that wild? Well, yeah, especially thinking back to episode seven with Rina, who pointed out to us throughout opera's history, all these ways in which it has been subversive and has upset the status quo. And of course, someone that Adelina has worked with quite a lot is Ragnar Kjartensen, a performance and video artist living and working in Reykjavik. His work has been featured at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, the Barbican Centre in London, and the Palais de Tokyo in Paris, among other places. And you could see his work is all-encompassing. His videos, performances, drawings, and paintings rely heavily on references to film, music, visual culture, and literature. He's even produced some opera, including a war-themed piece called Krieg.
1: Ragnar's current exhibition at the AGO is called Death is Elsewhere. It consists of seven video screens that surround the viewer. On the screens, two sets of twins stand across from each other in the vast Icelandic landscape. They're repeating a song in unison over and over without beginning or end.
0: We thought we'd start by asking Ragnar how music first came into his life.
3: music came into my life very much uh, in the form of uh, I mean there was like there was this idea of music in our basement which was a singer called Engel Lund she was a she was a folk singer born the year 1900 but she sang like kind of leader folk singer she sang uh, liter and then like songs from all over the world and and uh, and she was Danish. Her parents were Danish. Iceland was a colony of Denmark. And her parents were, had, the, uh, had the pharmacy in Reykjavik and were sort of Danish aristocrats. And, and she had moved from Iceland when she was 11 and studied singing and became sort of a star in Germany and in between the two wars. And her repertoire was totally amazing. She sang folk songs from all over the world, but mostly Icelandic folk songs and Jewish folk songs. And uh, as and he would tell all these stories, he would just like, you know, like then when the Nazis started, uh, you know, getting power in Germany, she was just like, oh, I just started my repertoire with the Icelandic songs because they all thought that was sort of Aryan music. And then I would just do the Jewish folk songs when the, when the, when the, uh, when the public was warm. So then like some guys in SS uniform would just forget, you know, because he said the she said the politics were so shallow, which is the brutality of politics, you know, so for me, like, I realized early on, like, kind of on the sort of the political power of music and like, you know, where it's from, what it means. But then the big, I think, breakthrough in music came when I, when Amadeus, the movie came out and I, and I got to see it seven times in the, in the cinema, I was like, because it's easy, like, you know, can I go to the cinema again to see Amadeus? It's like, yes, it's so cultural. You can... <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember what impact the music had on you? I think I think the emotional impact. But I think what I really remember the first the, the first time I really discovered music and the power of music was I think <laughs> when I heard Chris De Berg's Lady in Red on the radio. I was just like, this is so beautiful. Still when I put it on, I just kind of start crying.
1: Your exhibition at the AGO, as well as your Bliss project and so many others, regularly use repetitive performance elements that can last hours, days, or even weeks. What's the purpose
3: of repetition for you? It's a form I got, uh, I started to use very early on. It was almost like a form, like drawing, like, okay, this is an art form that exists. I'll just use this form. I don't never remember that John Cage line perfectly, but John Cage said something like, you know, Repeat something once, it's interesting. Repeat something twice, it's not that interesting. You know, he said like, but if you start repeating it more than ten times, it starts being interesting. Yeah, I wish I remember that quote now. But uh, but it's just the feeling of that uh, idea that repetition. There's something weirdly interesting about it. Also, like spiritual about it. It's just like sort of repetition is the uh, the the basics of all religion we uh, touch higher ground with just repeating stuff.
1: I was watching um, a video of Bliss yesterday and it had a very chant-like quality to it, even though it was that very opulent music of Mozart.
3: Yeah, yeah. It becomes, it's also interesting with Bliss, like this really gorgeous music that's a part of of a narrative structure of an opera, like, like when you just repeat that part again and again, it starts being like white noise. It starts to sound kind of Buddhist or Gregorian or, you know, it's just like that. the music slowly just goes out of it.
0: what is it that you hope the listeners or the viewers of your work might take away through that encounter with the repetition
3: i have i sort of have a very like you know i think i think it's i think it's almost rude to like wish something from my <laughs> from the people that come and see my works so i have i really have no expectations and no no uh it's just you put the work out there and and you know hope that you know it's not going to destroy people's day. (laughs) Because I think every interpretation is totally right. You can just see it and it's just like, oh this is annoying. And you just like leave. And that's totally that makes perfect sense. I mean, it's just like it's annoying to see something repeated. (laughs) 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 And I think that's an interesting interpretation of it. For me also like repetition is so much about like it's it gives things a painterly quality. You know that they are just repeating this. I'm not missing anything, you know. It's just like you see a painting in a, in a museum, and it's like, yep, there's the painting, and it shows this, and I can look at it for an hour, and something happens, or I can just glance at it, and I get it also. It's, and the hour or the glance, they both have the same impact.
0: Right. No, I've never thought of it in that way before, but whereas like you say with a painting, I could stay there for a moment or I could stay there for hours, by virtue of having the, the artwork or the music on repetition, we have that same opportunity to encounter it for a moment or longer.
3: I think that was that was sort of has sort of be the been the ground idea in this works, to like turn something that is narrative into something painterly or sculptural
0: people level that at opera as well in terms of the, the repetition with a de capo aria or something that's very long and durational that some people might find it annoying but other people find increasing meaning as they encounter the work over time
3: yeah absolutely and it's like and that's and talking about repetition in opera that's also really interesting that like you know most operatic theaters in the world are just like always doing the same operas again and again <laughs>
1: <laughs> there, like, yeah, there's just more space between them.
3: Yeah, there's just more space between them. <laughs> but like and you think about it like like you I mean like how you know if it if there wasn't COVID, you would think like, how many performances are there of the marriage of Figaro tonight, you know, in the world? These kind of entertaining song and dance plays that were made back in the days, so that they have become this like classic ritual of Western culture. It's sort of interesting.
1: And you developed an opera for yourself, Krieg. Fun fact for the listeners who are also big alt-indie rock fans, the opera was composed by Kjartan Sveinsen, the former keyboardist for the band Sigur Ross. I understand you're frequent collaborators. So why did you guys choose opera as the medium?
3: We actually have made two operas, Krieg and another, con- another one called the Explosive Sonics of divinity. (laughs) We chose opera because I just like the word opera, it just means a piece. You know, I realized like how open the word opera was when I was in Italy. You know, as a tourist, and so like you know, you know, some guy's fixing a road, it says like opera. <laughs> you know, it's just right. like this opera will be on till Wednesday. <laughs> so like everything you just you're just doing stuff that means opera. And mm-hmm. I found I found that so like it opened up the idea of opera so much because like we look at it as this very fixed things. Like Creek is an opera. Where there is just like dramatic music and the soldier dying, like for an hour. It's just like a guy dying. It's just uh, super dramatic music and just an actor just doing. "Ah!" (laughs) It's just an actor acting his heart out and like "Mm," super dramatic music. And that's also why I really love to collaborate with Kertan because he, I mean, those who know his uh, his work with uh, Sigurós it's very like very emotional music he makes and you know like although you get like this stupid idea like you know like can you make really ridiculously dramatic music when somebody is just dying on the stage for an hour he goes like yes I will do that and he actually does it with heart and like all the way it's just it is really heartbreaking music it's not like You know, he just sort of, he he has a very good sense of humor, but he knows like, you know, you just have to take the humor out of it. So it works. So it becomes weird and interesting.
0: The next question we were interested in asking you, Ragnar, was about pieces that don't have narrative at their center. But yet have this emotional capacity to to create this uh, this reaction in us, and it feels like that's exactly what you're talking about. Is that despite the fact that story wise there isn't an evolution, it's just this one moment. Could you talk to us a little bit more about that?
3: I really like this idea of high points. You know, like I mean, because I had, for example, I had myself seen seen many many versions of the marriage of Figaro just to wait for that you know, final moment. You go through the whole opera, fall asleep two times. And I mean, I always fall asleep at opera and I think that's a healthy thing. I mean, I think it's the art goddess is whispering to you while you're sleeping at an opera. When you just take the high points and just like turn them into white noise. Yeah, you take the emotional out of the most emotional, but it is always emotional. There's some, there's some weird thing that happens that I find interesting being you know looking at rehearsals in the theater when when there was like when actors were rehearsing the same scene over and over again i was always so curious what was happening before it and what was happening after it and then you saw the actual production then it was like narrative and this thing was happening before it and this thing after it i remember like, i remember it was always such a disappointment you know i hadn't imagined anything it was just this idea that something was before and something after and I had no idea what it was and it was mysterious <laughs> and then like when the narrative structure of, of the play came it was like oh yeah this this is it and narrative structures are always sort of the same so you know talking about other kinds of repetition it's like we always tell the same stories and, and I mean, it's and I mean it's depressing when you ask a human being like do anything you can with your imagination. You just go like, uh, dragons, uh, space.
0: <laughs> yeah. Beginning, middle, end. Yeah. yeah. yeah.
1: Journey. Yes. <laughs> yeah, totally.
0: yeah.
1: yeah.
0: Yeah. I'm even thinking about how our, how our lives are repetition in the sense of go to sleep, wake up, eat some food, brush your teeth, see Absolutely. some people.
3: Yeah. And then we look so much for, uh, for security in repetition. And like, you know, like, that's also the nice thing about like these COVID times. Like I've, I've started to like live a repetitive life because like my life was just like always traveling, like constant, like mayhem. But now it's like, I feel like my soul is, my soul is settling. It's like the dust settling. Like now I live a repetitive life and I sort of know what's going to happen tomorrow. It's just like.
0: I too have witnessed that in the rehearsal hall, where the actors will do the scene over and over and over again, and there is a magic that emerges, or it creates its own meaningful experience. And sometimes I then too miss miss what happens in rehearsal when we actually get to a production where everything yeah. just kind of goes one to the next to the next to the next.
3: That, that was sort of that was sort of the I think that was the the ground idea of like why I started doing this stuff. I think.
1: Music from a whole range of genres factors so heavily into your art. And I'm thinking about some of your other works here like God and A Lot of Sorrow. In the first, you're singing with an orchestra. And in the second, you have the band The National singing their song Sorrow over and over for six hours. Why is music so successful at eliciting the experience you're after?
3: There is something ridiculously great about music. And it's like, it goes back to the lady in red, you know. It's just like, it's just you know, like time stops and like everything, you know, everything else just disappears. That's what a great, that's what great music does, you know, Beethoven or the Stallion or you know, like it's just something <laughs> ticks you, and and you know, kicks you in the guts. It's totally not based on genre. I, w- I was just listening to the Winner Takes It All with Appa yesterday for the ninth millionth time, and it's just like. This song is so ridiculously good. It's so brutal, and it's so multi-layered. It's just a, you know, it's a, it's a mega heroic ballad about for about the one who is defeated, and you know, and the the background story that like, like he wrote it for her when they were divorcing. It's just ah, it's just so hurtful. It's just a. It just, like, kills my heart every time when I hear it. And also just, like, makes me so happy because it's a it's a gorgeous art piece. Just put on this apple song and you're doing the dishes and it just takes you and you start crying while you're doing the dishes. I mean, it's in the background, but it's more powerful than pottery. The winner takes it all The loser
2: standing small Beside the victory. That's her destiny.
0: I was in your arms.
1: As a musician yourself, do you see any difference between the way you engage with music in a gallery setting versus how you experience it on stage or in a concert hall?
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean there's the I think that's why I started working with music in the visual art form. Was that that you have somehow this free space. You can suddenly do anything you want with music. I mean, I remember it like when being in a band, it was like, I mean, it's a very, the music world is a very, it's a very uh, limited world in a way. I mean, it's just like you write something, you rehearse it and you perform it, record it and you tour it, maybe make a video. And it's like everything is like, the form is very precise. I mean I mean, you know it like from even in, Opera is very precise no 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 this is not an opera this is not this is not this this is not a country song this is like all this really like uh boring stuff around this beautiful thing that music is and uh and I just realized because I when I went to I think I went into art school because like I realized that visual art is the sort of ultimate freedom I think Marshall duchamp with his urinal gave Everybody that came after him, this total freedom. Like you can do whatever you want and say it's an art piece, and you know there is no way no one can say anything. <laughs> I mean, you people can just say it's good or bad, but you know it's uh of course there's freedom of the of the art space or the even the art idea, but it's so uh, that I really like. So that's why I really like working with music in a in a kind of. Uh, art space function rather than, you know, the the classical concert function. But like, I mean, like being, playing with a band in a concert or like, it's just fantastic. But I mean, it's a very, very different thing.
0: What have you encountered from the performers who've been involved in that repetitive performance? What's some of the the discoveries or reactions that they've had in being the ones to perform
3: that repetition? For most of the time, I've heard, you know, very positive reactions and you know understandably some people are just like I can't you know because that's also why I always say like you know if you if you feel this is ridiculous and you just can't do it I really understand that. and you should just like say I can't do it and leave but those who those who have done it usually have a very positive experience from it uh, that's also why I I started you know asking other people to do these kind of performances because I did them myself first started doing like these kind of long durational performances alone. And I just realized it was so nice. It was like, it's just like, ah, it's just sort of get away from reality. You're just in some performance for 12 hours and there's nothing that can touch you. It's sort of because like, because our lives are a narrative structure. Like I'm doing this now, then I'm doing that now. And what what you're doing between like, like, but when you're just like in something for hours and hours, there's like, You know, it's sort of freedom for the mind.
0: What are some of your standout memories from having performed this kind of work yourself?
3: When we filmed uh, Bliss in in LA, like uh, uh, almost two years ago now, I just remember like we had been for 11 hours and I was just like, oh no, it's about to end. You know, it's just like a weird feeling. You're just like, I love to be drenched in this music. But you know, you're, yeah, and then you're at the same time like, oh, wow, it's gonna be fun to end and like have a drink. Oh god! <laughs> <it. laughs> but I, but I think I think one of my most memorable experiences was like I was doing a performance in Norway, where I was lying in a basement. Yeah, there was a trap door that was open, and you saw me performing underneath a trap door, and I was just like lying there for a week. You know, like uh, singing something like that for a week a group of teenagers came to see it and they were like looking at me through that through that you know through that trapdoor like down on me and I just saw all these faces of teenagers and then there was this beautiful moment when they just started
1: oh no <laughs> I was going to ask if that brought that positioning brought out some of the worst in people
3: and i just remember like you fucking assholes but like who is the asshole i totally understand you (laughs) no i this is so pretentious me lying here doing like ah, some sound like i i felt i deserved it and i was like it was a really interesting feeling
1: (laughs) it's just hitting me as we discuss like how paradoxical your work really is and I don't know that I felt that before coming into this interview I was just fascinated by it but didn't have a sense of that like you're creating permanence out of something impermanent but then that's giving you impermanence (laughs) is that something you were trying you're trying to express like sort of the paradox of existence really Yeah, I think so.
3: Yes, I think so, Robin. (laughs) Yes, (laughs)
0: yes. (laughs) Well, that was super fun. (laughs) Like, such a playful energy. Like, I really loved his humor and his appreciation of beauty in whatever form it comes.
1: Right? There's no sense of guilty pleasure when he's talking about music. Like, he embraces Abba and Christopher as... Openly as he embraces more classic works.
0: And there is no sense of hierarchical preference or positioning of these different styles of music.
1: Right. Like I have this stereotype about contemporary artists. I don't know if you do, too. But I find because contemporary art is so cerebral that I expect the artists to maybe be snobby or to have a very structured. Hierarchy. And it was just such a joy to have that stereotype for me completely dismantled by Ragnar.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, and I'm always just afraid that I'm not going to get it, that I'm not going to have the education or the, the wisdom to understand what they're putting forward. And yet with Ragnar, it felt like he's so open and inclusive of whatever response the audience might bring to their experience. This idea of equanimity and being okay with whatever they offer. Like, if you find it annoying, that's fine. If you love it, that's great too. Which is an incredibly healthy attitude to have towards your own art creation. I wish I could have that. I get the sense that what he does is deeply considered, it's thought through, it's intentional, it's specific, and yet there doesn't seem to be this sense of attachment to the result. Right, it's more just, it's the process.
1: I get the sense that a positive response is a bonus that really the joy is creating. Should we all be so blessed to have that kind of attitude towards creation?
0: Yeah, to like work really hard at what we do and yet have this freedom in the sense of non-attachment, not grasping at this Mm -hmm. one solitary response. When I think about like the myriad of audience reactions that could come to his work... I'm thinking about John Cage, who he mentioned, Mm -hmm. with the idea that John Cage created these containers, these experiments, wherein whatever sound was created by the audience, by a bird flying overhead, became part of the performance. And so now when I reflect on Ragnar's work, I also think about all the ways that the audience might react and how that becomes part of the performance or part of the overall entity. Thinking of Bliss,
1: where it is a snippet of Mozart's work being played over and over again for 12 hours he stayed the whole time. Mm -hmm. But I'm sure the audience, many of the audience members came and went. And that that would become the sounds of people going and sitting down and getting up and leaving, and wrestling through papers, putting their bags down, all the sounds that accompany getting comfortable watching something, then becomes part of bliss itself.
0: How the singers and the orchestra and the conductor are dealing with the fact that they're performing this over and over again. That to me would become part of the experience too, that I would find really interesting in terms of fatigue, in terms of thirst, in terms of physical mm-hmm. exhaustion.
1: To bring it back to the Zen idea, it's almost like it becomes a cone for that gets repeated over and over again. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Where the
1: artists then find different meaning and different interpretations. When you repeat something and the freedom that that brings up, the freedom of repetition, like you, Julie, you were saying in in the rehearsal hall.
0: Yeah. And I was just thinking about that, actually, in the sense that sometimes I give it as the exercise to the performers. Say there's this little snippet that we're working on. Maybe it's a two-minute scene. Maybe it's a bit longer. We're going to do it four times in a row. We're not going to talk about it in between. You're going to perform it. Or practice it, rehearse it, and then once you get to the end of it, just go back to the beginning and, and do it again. So they loop it three or four times just to allow them that that time to live in it and to explore different choices. Because sometimes we get bogged down when we stop and talk and talk about things all the time. It's somehow like um, it puts the brakes on a creative process on a sort of flow that can be really useful. So I'll encourage them to use that repetition and rehearsal to see what it yields, to see what it reveals.
1: When I've had to do that as an artist. It creates so much freedom mm-hmm. because you get so married to your ideas, mm-hmm. and then just with you with repetition, you divorce yourself from them, un, almost unwittingly. Like it's just a thing that happens. Yeah that 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 all gets stripped away.
0: Well, and Robin, I'm curious about like your own experiences with repetition and duration, like as an audience member or as a performer.
1: We talked about the Kusama exhibit, and that there were you had two minutes per room. And I am kicking myself now for not asking Adelina this when we had the chance. Was that two minutes purely for time consideration to make sure they got the masses through? Or was that the intention of the exhibit
0: oh interesting on a
1: non-practical level?
0: Right. Had the artist determined two minutes is what I feel the audience should spend, or was it logistical?
1: Exactly. And there were some of those rooms that I just wanted to stay in forever. By limiting to two minutes, it completely forced me to absorb them and perceive them in a way that I don't think I would have if I didn't have that constraint put on me. And I was just trying to ignore everybody taking selfies because I wanted to just absorb it. And I, I probably sound like I'm trying to virtue signal, but it was just how I chose to want to experience that moment. The duration, I think, played heavily into that choice where if I had three minutes, four minutes even, maybe I would have
0: taken selfies.
1: How about you?
0: Well, I certainly found myself envying when Ragnar was talking about the liberation that comes and the fact that he can just like release into it and not have to think about anything else other than that repeated performance that he's participating in. Uh, I found myself thinking back to the discovery I made sort of having trained in school and as a young artist you just everything felt so precious you felt like you had this one chance to get it right or you desperately wanted to get it right Mm -hmm. whereas as I got older and I had more chances to do things repeatedly like to do a hundred performances of a same show Mm -hmm. there you get a lot less precious and Mm -hmm. the repetition can be something that's really healthy and you explore something a little different each time but you just don't hold you don't grasp as tightly to each Mm -hmm. one, because you know that it's part of this repeated process, and that you can discover different nuance and subtlety every time.
1: Basically, with repetition, there's that freedom, but he was also trying to make something that's ephemeral permanent. In doing so, in creating a sort of permanence for the audience members, it creates an impermanence and a freedom for the performers. And I love that paradox there. I yeah. thought
0: that was so fascinating. Well, and speaking of impermanent permanence, if we take a step back and consider opera as a whole, uh, like let's think about opera as durational art. Like the idea that for centuries now, we've been all participating in this longstanding durational performance in the sense that we repeatedly stage these same works over and over again and we return to them and see them, hear them performed.
1: And each production is sort of that freedom to explore a little bit differently Mm -hmm. that the repetition
0: provides. Mm -hmm. I find myself thinking about what if an opera company decided we're going to stage the same work. So for our six main stage shows, if we're thinking of the the COC model, Mm -hmm. we're only going to do um, the elixir of love, completely (laughs) random choice. But each production is going to be different. It's going to be the same singer, same orchestra, same conductor, but it's going to be six different productions of the same work, (laughs) like six different concepts, six different sets of costumes and sets. But that same group of artists is going to do it over the course of an entire season. Like, it's completely weird. And I don't suggest it as a business model, necessarily. (laughs) I can't imagine
1: many audience members really getting behind that. I totally would. Maybe a different production, but... Maybe not, because there's a a whole bunch of fun things you can do with Elixir of Love. Um, But yeah, that turning the opera company into really overt performance art.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Contemporary
1: performance art rather than opera. Yeah. That's a, a really cool, fun idea conceptually, anyway.
0: Mm-hmm. And then even in opera, in its traditional usage or its traditional experience, it is durational performance art, too. Like, Wagner, yeah. the like people who go to attend the ring, Right. and they're there for a weekend or they're there for a week or, or a longer period of time, and they're like those devotees to be there in that ritual way to participate.
1: Uh, like I remember the Four Seasons Center when it opened. That was I didn't go on vacation. I didn't go visit my family. My vacation was going to the C.O.C. Mm-hmm. and watching the Ring Cycle. The Ring Cycle, in and of itself, is a kind of durational piece. And then the reproductions of the Ring Cycle is a kind of durational piece that's been happening for over a hundred years for almost 200. Like, it's mind boggling.
0: And when I attend a Wagner opera, whether it's I'm seeing it on in a video format or live in in an opera house, I think I go through all stages in the sense of there's moments where I get annoyed. There's moments where I go like, oh, this plot isn't moving quickly (laughs) enough. But then there's this then I'm but then I'm completely overcome by the music. And you feel this sense of like, proud completion mm. and it's also musically really satisfying in terms of you know those melodies and those harmonies being drawn out for that resolution. Um, but I go through all these different uh, relationships to the work throughout those hours and hours.
1: I have to confess, like Ragnar, I go through a period of I've just fallen asleep for <laughs> a few minutes and that that's all part of the experience. I'm going to fall asleep. I'm going to get frustrated. My butt's going to get sore. I'm going to transcend and experience God, creator, other, some greater power.
0: One of my big takeaways from chatting with Ragnar and Adelina is the fact that Both of them have opera as part of their creative lives, or it's something they've attended, it's something they've experienced, and yet their work goes far beyond that. They have this like really thriving artistic curatorial practice that touches on opera, but has a lot more to it. And I love that. I love how Mm -hmm. opera can be something you're super passionate about, but it can also be something that you have this passing acquaintance with, in the sense of like, oh yeah, I know her. We hang out sometimes. Yeah, it's no more or less valid. Your relationship
1: is your relationship. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's so equally valid, I agree, and so to take a really high emotional point out of an opera and loop it, you get to write your own before and after to set it in, mm-hmm. which I think is just fascinating,
0: yeah, no, this whole chat has been so great, and it reminds me that as as different arts organizations here in the city, I wouldn't want to think of us as vying for audiences or for this one scarce place in the city. We're all working together and we're all pouring water into that well, collaborating together and, um, you know, supporting one another. Because ultimately, I think we all want the same thing, which is to have this vibrant urban life where everyone feels connected to to art and are empowered to dream and to imagine that before and that after that you mentioned, Robin. <laughs> Thanks for joining us for episode 12. We'd love to hear your questions or feedback or even ideas for future episodes. Either tag us on social at Canadian Opera or email us at audiences at coc.ca. You can also send us a voice memo and there's instructions for how to do that at coc.ca slash We appreciate all the feedback we've received so far and the reviews you've left on Apple Podcasts. Coming up next episode, we're exploring the connection between opera and the body.
1: Joining us as guests will be Canadian mezzo-soprano Christina Zabo and COC Performance Kinetics consultant Jennifer Swan.
0: With both of them, we're really excited to explore how performers engage their breath and bodies during performance, as well as looking at some new holistic ways that artists are being trained for opera performance.
1: I'm definitely looking forward to this one. Be the first to find out about free events and concerts from the COC by signing up for our monthly eOpera newsletter at coc.ca
0: eOpera. Thank you to all of our supporters for making Key Change possible. This week, we want to especially thank every COC member, subscriber, and donor for coming on this journey with us as we explore new ways to share opera's unique power. So to make sure you don't miss an episode, subscribe to Key Change, wherever you get your podcasts. Key Change is produced by the Canadian Opera Company and hosted by Robin Grant Moran and Julie MacIsaac.
1: To learn more about today's guests and see the show notes, please visit our website at coc.ca slash keychange.